Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning to right relationship with one another. I'm very glad you are here. No matter what body you're in, no matter who you love, you are welcome in this place. We are scattered to the four winds right now, but I'm hoping that we can gather ourselves together in our hearts for this service on Sunday morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by welcoming the people who are next to us. Um, Let's do that if you have comments in the format that you're watching this on. I would love for you to welcome each other in the comments. I invite you to join me as we say our chalice lighting words together. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Here are some words from a speech by a labor union leader, Nicholas Klein, in 1914. And, my friends, in this story, you have a history of this entire movement. First, they ignore you. Then, they ridicule you. And then, they attack you and want to burn you. And then, they build monuments to you. This congregation wrote a mission for itself. We revise it every seven years, and we say it together every Sunday morning. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After our mission, we have a moment for beloved community where we lift up something that many of us may not have known. And since I'm talking about the suffragist movement today, I would like to tell us a little bit about a march in Washington organized by Alice Paul and the women in Washington and nationwide who were trying to petition Woodrow Wilson um, to give women the vote. This was the day before his inauguration. There was an enormous march Ida B. Wells, a black suffragist and anti-lynching activist, a journalist, was there with the Illinois delegation, which had many black women in it. There were black women scattered through all the state's delegations and all the groupings of professions that were marching that day. And the Southern women from D.C. came to Alice Paul and said, if there are black women marching with the white women, that is going to offend a lot of our Southern suffragists. She was faced with a choice. Having worked in politics, all of the white women who were head of the suffragist organizations decided 
that they did not want to offend the Southern suffragists. And so they said to the black women, listen, we want y'all to march with us, but we want you just to march all together, just y'all, and be in the back of the parade. Ida B. Wells said, I'm not going to do that. She and several in her delegation joined the parade halfway through when they were having the white women were having terrible difficulty being surrounded and kettled by police and by rowdy men who were watching them jeering, throwing things, um, crowding in on them. Then Ida B. Wells and her folks joined the parade then. I'm hoping that the white women were grateful in some way. But the racism of the white suffragists in the United States is a shameful part of our history that we must acknowledge. Today's reading comes to us from Sirish Kondra. Kondra is a self-described writer, marketer, and strategy guy. He's written books of poetry and prose. He's the head of a private venture capital firm in his hometown of Hyderabad, India also known as the City of Pearls. He's earned several degrees in cybersecurity, law, technology, and management, and is the founder of Karya Karta in Hyderabad, which is a foundation that works for political and social change, as well as the welfare of India's children. These are his words. When I sat, I was alone. When I stood, I was a group. When I walked, I turned into a mob. When I spoke, I changed into a mass. And when I raised my voice, I transformed into a movement. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together in an attitude of meditation and prayer, you may be unable to grab a few moments of quiet while you listen to this service, or you may have nothing but quiet or somewhere in between. But I'm hoping whatever your situation is, you can breathe deeply with us. Let us join together. Beloved spirit of truth and beloved spirit of love and beloved ancestors, we know that none of us is perfect. We know none of us is perfectly righteous, perfectly wise, has perfect judgment. And yet we feel sorrow in our hearts for these ancestors of ours, for the ancestors of color who were asked to join in the back of the parade, and for the ancestors who were white, who made that ask. We are sorrowing in our hearts because of that. 
We ask that we might use a quiet time to imagine a world where things are fair and where justice is served, no matter what gender, what skin tone, what ethnicity people are, that we might all have justice together fairly. Sometimes it's hard to even imagine that. But may it be so sooner rather than later and may it be with our committed help. Now you are invited to light candles in your home if you care to. Candles of joy, sorrow, hope, remembrance, or determination. We're having lots of uprisings on the streets of our nation right now since the May 25th murder of George Floyd. That has been the latest last straw, but we have last straw after last straw after last straw and we take to the streets. Very little changes. 
Maybe this time, maybe this time it'll change. And we each all have our opinion about um, the peaceful protesters or the protesters who are throwing things at police and throwing fireworks and setting little fires and setting big fires and the protesters who are smashing out windows and are they... Uh, white supremacists trying to start a race riot, like that one guy with dressed all in black with the umbrella was shown to be. Um, we have varying opinions about protests as they grow a little more violent. And I want to talk to you about the violence in protest. And I want to talk to you about it to give some context about uh, social change because Tuesday the 18th of August is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave votes to women, although as it turned out, mostly white women. You've heard me say before that one thing I've noticed about social change is that it really helps to have like a pincer movement on the powers that be, where the people approaching from one side are kind of respectable and well-spoken, and the people approaching on the other side are way more disruptive and willing to be um, violent. You know, in the suffrage movement, you're going to hear me talk about Alice Paul, who was on the more disruptive side, and Carrie Chapman Catt, who was on the more respectable side, and how they worked together so the politicians would decide they would rather deal with the respectable ones than the radical ones, but you needed both. We talked about Martin Luther King Jr., who was radical in his Away, but who had a commitment to nonviolence, which was, I think, falsely comforting to the powers that be. And Malcolm X, on the other side, who had no such commitment to nonviolence, scared the bejesus out of the powers that be. And so they decided they would rather deal with Dr. King than with Malcolm X. Same thing with gay rights. I mean, when you have the, the street drag queens at, um, in New York who were throwing bricks and foul mouth, and then you have a, a little bit more respectable gay people who were asking for change as well, even during the AIDS pandemic, which, by the way, I wish people would talk about more instead of just hearkening back to a 100 years ago pandemic, we had a virus that wiped out so much of our gay community and now is wreaking havoc in the black community, um, we need to remember the, the radical act up activists, the gay movement, and those are the ones who drove the powers that be eventually, eventually to deal with the more respectable ones. This is how social change happens, and this is how social change happened with the, the suffrage movement as well. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the suffrage movement in Great Britain. The women in Great Britain were disparagingly called suffragettes, but they claimed that name for themselves, while the women in the U.S. called themselves suffragists. Anyway... Um, 
women in Great Britain had started coming out of their homes to do charity work. And then they started organizing against slavery in order to change the slavery laws in Great Britain. After working for anti-slavery laws, it was a natural progression that they should start working for the vote for women. Now, they petitioned Parliament. Um, Well-born ladies tried to get in to speak to the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and they were refused. They petitioned over and over again, uh, gathering working women to their side as well. Nothing worked. Six years of petition, 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 and they were laughed at. And the bills were filibustered, and nothing happened, nothing happened to advance the cause of votes for women. Winston Churchill was there, a young uh, MP, and he was given a walking stick as a present, and he joked in his thank you note that he would use it to beat off the attacks from the suffragettes. They needed that because the suffragettes, in their frustration, had started accosting the members of parliament on the streets. Special branch had to hire extra uh, men in order to begin protecting the MPs as they walked on the streets. MPs had never needed protection before, but now they did, including one woman who went after an MP with a dog whip. Of course, she was arrested. The British suffragettes used arrest and jail time as a way to pressure the government. They did this for years. Arrest, jail. Uh, When they would ask to have the same rights as male political prisoners, in other words, to get newspapers to read and to be able to receive mail, they were refused. And so they broke out every pane of glass in their cells. When one woman was taken to the punishment cell for this, She began refusing food. They knew that nobody in the British system wanted middle-class women to die of starvation in jail. And they used that knowledge to pressure the government politically. That went on for a long time. The women would be released after about four weeks of starvation. But then they began force-feeding the women. Force-feeding is a kind of torture. Force-feeding is something that we have done at Guantanamo Bay. It is against the national, international laws of how you're supposed to treat prisoners. But the British government did it. And that caused a kind of um, focus to be put on these political prisoners these women, then they decided to start doing this cat and mouse thing where uh, as soon as you starved for a while, they let you go until you got better, until you recovered a little bit, and then they would bring you back in to serve the rest of your sentence. Well, good luck finding some of those women because they became very adept at fleeing the law. In about 1913, there was the beginning of a more radical strategy. A woman named Emmeline Pankhurst, 
who was maybe in her 50s. She had a daughter, Christabel Pankhurst, who was studying law. She was 25 years old or so. Emmeline kept inciting the women to become more and more radical in their behavior. She said, they don't care about us, but they do care about property. And so there was one afternoon where a hundred women went down to the West End and at the stroke of 11, they all took hammers out of their sleeves and hammers out of their purses and started breaking glass in the windows of the shops. They said, we have nothing against the shopkeepers, but we are putting pressure on the government through the insurance companies. One woman at a horse race, maybe she wanted to put a suffragette scarf, a white scarf on the king's horse. We don't know exactly what was in her mind, but she slipped under the rail and stood in front of the king's horse and the king's horse ran into her tumbled over her and she was killed. Now the movement had a martyr. Someone had died. And the techniques got more and more violent. The women started making bombs. Yes, they started setting fire to things. What did they set fire to? Male-only spaces. They set fire to, to cricket uh, galleries and they set fire to uh, golf courses. They said, no vote, no golf. <laughs> they burned new construction on houses of the rich. They burned empty buildings. So they were bombers and arsonists. They cut telegraph lines they blew up mailboxes. They really were disruptive. This is 1913. In um, the, the period of time between May and July, there were, I think, 130 actions that involved property destruction by bomb or by fire. This began to get attention. This began to end the um, mockery of the suffragette movement and moved people to either be on their side or to be absolutely condemning of these women. Now, there is an American young woman, Alice Paul, who was in England to study uh, economics at the University of Bristol. And she began to go to demonstrations in London and began to learn from Emmeline Pankhurst. And she was what you call radicalized. Then she came back to the U.S. And in the U.S., the women's movement was headed up by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and um, Lucy Stone and... Uh, Alice Paul brought the more radical tactics, which made the more respectable women very uncomfortable. Although Susan B. Anthony had tried to vote and she got arrested, wouldn't pay her fine, and had a trial where she could speak her mind and be covered by the press. And so they were doing things like that. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton had written the Women's Bible, which is radical even for today. 
Frederick Douglass was a passionate proponent of votes for women. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony decided that trying to get the vote for black women and men, especially black men before white women got the vote, was going to diminish their cause. And so they began throwing Douglas and the the vote for black men under the bus. They began throwing the black women under the bus. There was a big convention in Atlanta and Susan B. Anthony, to our shame, asked Frederick Douglass not to come for fear of offending the Southern suffragists. That betrayal was felt deeply and still today there's a mistrust of white feminists by feminists of color because the white feminists seem to be always willing to prioritize whiteness, justice for white women over justice for black women and brown women and native women. There was a push, such a long push in the U.S., for suffrage for women. And women were infighting with each other about how radical to be. And this happens in every social movement. The respectables and the radicals start disagreeing about uh, how they should go about this. And what should be a priority, race or gender? What should be a priority? Black men were enfranchised with the 15th Amendment. And so for a few years... They had the vote and were able to serve in public office during Reconstruction in the South. But then the KKK rose up, Jim Crow laws were passed, and the widespread disenfranchisement of black men began. They said if your grandfather was a slave, you couldn't vote. Then they began to have tests for voting. Did how, how, how well could you read? Could you guess the number of jelly beans in a jar? And this persisted until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which enfranchised black men and black women um, by saying that voter suppression was wrong. Now, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 has been eviscerated by our Supreme Court, and our current administration is doing every single thing they can think of to disenfranchise as many voters as possible. This is a fight, apparently, that has to go uh, be done over and over and over again. It's not like you can just win your cause one time and then the world is better from there. As you've seen, the pendulum swings back and forth, back and forth. So we take to the streets again. And I want to urge you to understand that property damage is the last desperate expression of people who are feeling ignored and powerless. 
rioting is the expression of the disempowered. We have not gotten as violent even now as the women in Great Britain were in the late 1800s. We haven't gone after Ted Cruz with a dog whip, heaven forbid. Nobody has gone after Mitch McConnell in a restaurant with a dog whip. We just say, hey, how dare you show your face in here? And then a lot of us are just grasping our pearls, saying, oh, you shouldn't accost a politician in a restaurant when he's trying to just have a nice dinner with his family. We differ on tactics. Some tactics are meant to create interest in your cause and make the people in power rush to deal with the respectables instead of the radicals. I would like to end with a quotation from Frederick Douglass. He says this. Let me give you a word of the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other tumults to silence. It must do this, or it does nothing. If there's no struggle, there's no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are those who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle, he says, may be a moral one or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to and you have found the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. We are standing up to show tyrants the limits of their power whether you do it as a respectable or whether you do it as a radical. We are doing it together, and all of us need all of us. May it be so. I invite you to join me as we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts, until we are together again. The words of Holly Near. I am open and I am willing for to be hopeless would seem so strange. It dishonors those who go before us so lift us up to the light of change. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.